0: two minutes to play with the left hand and authority. McKee gets it in the middle of the win.
2: What's going on everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Setting the Pace on PacersTalk.net. Joining me right now on the other line is Derek Schultz. Derek, what's going on man? What's up Alex? Thanks so much for having me on your show man. Yeah, no problem. It's uh, it's good to hear from you. I definitely miss hearing you on the radio. But I know that you're, you're staying busy, you're enjoying this nice weather we had today. And, you know, trying to figure out things to do during quarantine, I'm, I'm assuming, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, every day I am just trying to think of ways to grasp onto whatever fading relevance I still have in the city of Indianapolis. So <laughs> that's been that's, no, in all seriousness, uh, I'm, I'm like everybody else, man. I'm, I'm just trying to get through every day. And I think I speak for most people when I say that um, my wife actually is a, uh, uh, ICU critical care nurse at Methodist hospital downtown. So that's been a little bit nerve wracking and and just, there's been some anxiety and and fear when it comes to that, uh, because she's there, she's there right now. She's working the overnight shift. Um, so she, uh, she's kind of on the front lines of this whole thing, but, um, you know, just trying to stay safe, trying to keep my three-year-old occupied and, and the weather change has been helpful because at least we can get out of the house and, Go for walks or go out in the backyard or something like that. So it's it's not too much cabin fever like it was, let's say, a month ago.
2: Well, yeah, that's definitely definitely something I'd be worried about too. If my wife was in the ICU department, now I'm sure she can't talk about anything, but I'm just imagining what it's like to be involved with that, especially with COVID nineteen patients. I've heard stories of like uh, nurses have to like strip down in the garage when they get home and wash their uh, scrubs immediately because they don't want to spread the virus. I mean, it's it's crazy. I mean, it's a weird time we're living in. I've never seen anything like this. And you, you see it all over the place. Multiple people are getting laid off of jobs. I mean, this is serious stuff. And it's really sad to see, but we're trying to make the best of it. We're trying to not think about it and talk about sports. But in a sports world, I know that you and me have been talking off air a little bit you're You're kind of pessimistic about the the NBA season returning, and I want to hear your thoughts on that and why you don't think the NBA will return this year?
1: Oh yeah, no I, I think it's I think it's out. Um, I think certainly the winter sports, and I think there's a really good chance that the spring sports are just not going to get off the ground because even if we return to some level of normalcy here, let's say May first we start to open things back up again. I just don't think we're going to be really ready to start having 20,000 people sit in a building at the same time again, anytime soon. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think for sure the NBA is out, you know, major league baseball talking about this Arizona thing and all the, uh, the hoops that they'd have to jump through. That just does. It just doesn't seem feasible to me to, to quarantine players from their families for four and a half months yeah. Just to get this season going, and and what are you going to do? You're going to play outdoor baseball at spring training facilities in freaking Arizona in July? Is yeah. that is that really that's the plan? I, you know, I um I and I, and I hate saying that, Alex, because I'm not trying. I'm like everybody else. I miss it desperately. I miss the distraction. I, we need sports. I I bleed sports just like everybody else that's listening to this sports podcast, right? Right. But um I I and I don't know. Um, I don't think anybody knows. It, it's scary. It's really hard to project. You know, two weeks ago, things were, looked a lot more bleak than they look right now. But two weeks from now, things might be a lot more bleak than they are right now. You know, I have no idea. But I just kind of adding everything up, I just don't think that we're going to be ready to pack tens of thousands of people into arenas for, for these sort of games anytime soon. And this thought of, you know, fanless arenas or fanless venues for these games – I just think logistically, first off, it's awkward, and, and B, I just don't know how um, how feasible some of these plans are. I appreciate them trying, and, I, and I'm glad that Adam Silver or Rob Manfred or, or whoever else wants to kind of make a go of it, and they're exhausting every option. It just doesn't seem like there are a lot of good options to, to get this thing back going again.
2: Well, I mean, what it's come down to right now is we've got guys playing NBA 2K against each other. Um, in their live streaming, we've got Fox Sports Indiana playing, you know, uh, a simulated version of Pacers Heat uh, on 2K for tonight's for tonight's game. I'm not even sure who won. I didn't tune in. But one thing that was interesting to me was Adrian Wojnarowski and Baxter Holmes were reporting with ESPN about uh, the NBA and NBAPA have been collaborating in, in assessing a rapid response testing device that, in theory, could yield accurate results within minutes. So. I I didn't read too far into that story because I just I'm not sure how that would work. But do you think that would help, especially if they were going to play in fanless arenas? Because that kind of seems like the way the NBA is wanting to go—playing without fans.
1: Yeah, but here's my problem with that. What really is the priority right now?
2: Is the priority to so
1: so we have let's say that we have this rapid test, right? So now we're going to use the rapid test on NBA players, but people that are dying in New Orleans don't get the rapid test. People in New York City don't get the rapid test. Right. Um, 11 people died at, a, at a, a retirement home in Anderson yesterday. They don't get the rapid test. You know what I mean? That, that's, that's what kind of makes me uncomfortable. In fact, I was really uncomfortable with the fact that somehow when this whole thing got off the ground – and thank God that it did, right? I mean, who knew that Rudy Gobert would really be the person that that set the domino effect for all of sports? But what, what kind of made me uncomfortable about the whole thing is that suddenly the entire Utah Jazz team, and, and I'm trying to remember who they were playing that night. I think it was Memphis, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, they all the case, have ex- access. Okay, okay, see, okay. They all have access to tests, and they all get them right away, and everybody got tested, yet it's really hard for anybody else to get it. You know, I – Uh, Again, I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer here or anything like that. I just think that when you have an unprecedented health crisis like what we're going through, not just in this country, but on planet Earth right now, uh, sports to me, as much as I love them, aren't really in the forefront of my mind. And it's certainly not on uh, the top or even near the top of the priority list. And I I get that they want to do it for their fans. And I get that there are millions and in cases, billions of dollars that are on the line here. But um, I just, it's, it's April what 7th today. I I just don't see the timetable moving rapidly enough to be able to salvage a, a makeshift NBA playoff and these fanless arenas and and all this other stuff. I I think if, if we could, if we could start football season on time, and, and still have like the golf majors and racing, then I, then I think we're doing pretty well for 2020. Because yeah. I, I think that, I think pretty much that's the best case scenario. I think the best case scenario is that you get the tennis, the, the uh, golf majors in, you get some sort of a racing season, and you know, the fall sports or the sports that go into the fall, I think, are, are salvageable. I don't think the NBA is. And I think baseball is going to have a really, really hard time because to have a legitimate season, you've got to have probably about 110 games. And you, you need four weeks for pitchers to get ready once this lifts. So you're talking about an tack on another month there. I, I think logistically baseball is in a really tough spot.
2: Yeah, and I think you bring up a great point, like it's bigger than sports. And I think sometimes as sports fans, we can kind of get in that little box of thinking, oh, I just can't wait for sports to come back because it's that escape. It's that I don't have to think about this. I can just enjoy this, you know, that kind of thing. And I, I'm as big a Pacer fan as I know, and it's – kind of been one of those things where I just kind of accepted the fact that, that it's not coming back anytime soon, so I don't even get excited for it or get my hopes up, and I just try to find other things to do, whether it's, you know, enjoy being outside in the neighborhood or, you know, playing a board game with family members or or whatever, you know, just trying to find different things, and sometimes I think it's almost a good thing uh, for us to kind of just sit back and realize there's other things to do out, outside of sports, and, you know, being on social media 24-7 and that kind of thing, you know, spending time with your family. Now, there are some people that don't have that opportunity because they might be single living on their own, and it, it's different. But I, I really do think that this is a very serious situation, and, um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure how they're going to go about this, but it, it, to me, it feels like if there was a vaccine for it, I feel like more than likely people would probably be more apt to go about their everyday business and do things. But because there's no vaccine, there's no way to cure this. People are, people are living in fear.
1: Yeah. And I, I think what the, the real issue is, is that, you know, I'm not really afraid for me. Um, I'm afraid for my 70 year old dad. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like that. And, and we've kept my son away from it. And my parents who lived in Connecticut for 40 years and then moved out here specifically because my wife and I were about to have their first grandchild. <laughs> um, and we've kept him away for six weeks and, and that's been kind of the hardest thing about it. So I, I think it's really, you know, people looking out for each other more than just a, a fear necessarily for yourself. You fear for, you know, you have a neighbor that has um, a thyroid condition or diabetes or obesity or, you know, any of these other underlying conditions as well. And then, of course, the age thing, you know, there's so many people that are in these risk groups that um, could be negatively impacted by this. But um, I just it's not that the NBA doesn't matter. The NBA matters very much. And and people want to have that back. But I, I just don't think we're at a point now where. Saving the season is um, is anything more than the hail Maryest of hail Marys right now. I, I would literally be where, where we sit today, nine forty three p.m. on April seventh. I would be shocked if we have a completion of this NBA season.
2: Yeah, and that's kind of going to be tougher fans to hear, and I, I, I was very ignorant when I first started talking about this after the first report came out. I was thinking, let's see how this is in a month and, and go from there, and I was like, no, I think we're definitely going to have a regular season, and I think we're going to have a playoff still, because I was in the mindset of, they don't want to lose these games, uh, the NBA does, and I was thinking more on a business side for them just because I really feel like they want to make sure that they get everything paid for with their TV deals. And whether it's you know fans or not, fans are going to tune in, especially now. I mean, fans are hungry for anything. So I do think that if they did go to fanless arenas, well, and, and they could even, I mean, some people have even suggested they start the playoffs off in June or July. And it's, it's hard to fathom, but I could definitely see them maybe trying to do that, just to try to generate some money so they don't lose as much as they're going to be losing if they were to end the season as it is because it's just such a weird thing we've never experienced before. And some people have even suggested that it would be smart for the NBA to start their season in December and kind of let football have that time because football dominates anyway. So to kind of go in a little bit of a different direction, what are your thoughts on the NBA kind of starting their schedule at a different time next year to maybe, uh, you know, go into like July or August come playoff time and try to avoid all football at at all possible.
1: Well, you know, I, I'm not I'm not as much focused on moving the season as I am. I, I'm a very big proponent, and this isn't just for the NBA. I'm a very big proponent of condensing all sports seasons uh-huh. outside of maybe the NFL. I think the NFL is about has it right. Um, I loved. Uh, a couple of years ago, I think it was the 10-11 season, if I'm not mistaken. I think, what, what do we end up having? F- 58 games, 60 games, something like that?
2: Yeah, I think um, we were like, what were we, 42 and 24, something like that?
1: Yeah, remember. yeah, so six, 60-ish something games. I, I know it was 50 and 99, which was a little too condensed. I mean, they barely saved the season in 99. <laughs> um, but, I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not as much in favor of that. But I, w- I would love to see the NBA shave 15 games off their schedule, Um, You know, they've done a better job with the the second night of the back-to-back stuff um, and and trying to limit those and and, and all of that. I I, I would love to see baseball, and they'll they'll never do it because the numbers are so holy. They don't want to mess with that. I'd love to see baseball get down to like 140 games uh, because I I just think – I think in 2022, I just don't know if we really have the attention span. It just feels like it, it just goes and goes and goes and goes. And we're so obsessed now with winning championships. Did you win a ring? Oh, you didn't win a ring? Okay, you suck. So it makes the, the long, drawn-out regular season feel even less meaningful because we don't even celebrate regular season success anymore. Like, the Pacers had the best record in the East in 2014, and literally no one cares. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the NFL, it's kind of the same way. It, it, it used to be... Great to win the division. It used to be great just to go to the Super Bowl and now it's just you, you got to win it or the season's like a failure. Um, so, you know, I, I did see that and I, I'm, I, I guess because this, the sports calendar is so light here in Indianapolis in July because we have no baseball team in this market, no MLB team, I should say. Um, that would work better for me selfishly as a sports fan here in central Indiana to have the NBA go well into July instead of just kind of having this six to eight week dead period between the NBA finals and and the start of college football. But I I think overall um, I would much more be in favor of instead of just moving the NBA season or shifting it back a month or a month and a half, um, just condensing it and, and letting it run somewhat of the, the same sort of schedule but just chopping off 15 games or something like that and then maybe even drawing it out you can draw it out the same amount of time just fewer games so you have less second game uh, back-to-backs and, and all of that
2: yeah the four games in one week is quite a bit and I think the perfect way to do that is to play every every team that's not in your division uh, home and away kind of like to do with the different conferences that would give you 50 total games for those 25 teams and then with the four teams in your division play them four times and that would give you a total of sixty six games. I think that's a perfect number. Cuts off sixteen of the regular season games and you can expand that out. Maybe make the All-Star break like a full, you know, two weeks or something to give these guys a real buy of some sort because they play so many games and they play for so long. And it would allow guys to get healthy, that kind of thing. But yeah, no, I I mean I'm all I'm all for change. And I think you're 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 one hundred percent right when you talk about where, why championships are all we talk about. I mean, look at LeBron James makes it to the finals like eight years in a row, something like that. And all we talk about is his record in the finals instead of being like, wow, you took that calf's team to the finals, you know, that horrible calf's team to the finals and uh, stuff like that. So, and you even go back to like the 90s. I mean, look at a guy like Charles Barkley who never won a title, Reggie Miller, same thing. And they're always kind of criticized and knocked down on the pecking order because they don't have a title. And, I'm just curious, you know, you, you, you brought it up. So do you think that winning a title means everything or do you think it's way overblown?
1: No, it's completely overblown
2: because I just don't understand.
1: I don't understand the mentality of win a championship or you suck. Like if you can't enjoy sports and if you can't enjoy, uh, like, like let's say if the 2017-18 Pacer season, like if you didn't have fun watching that team, that team lost in the first round. If you didn't enjoy that season and have fun with that season, then what are you even doing liking sports? Right. Um, the, tw- the 2012 Colts, that was a great season. It came completely out of nowhere. Everyone thought they were going to be terrible. Reggie Wayne wore the orange gloves in the Chuck Pagano leukemia game. Uh, the Colts were, I think, 9-1 and one in one-score games. They had a ridiculous comeback in Detroit to win that game. It was an insanely fun season. They lost their only playoff game. They, in fact, they got dominated in Baltimore, who ended up running all the way to the Super Bowl. So I, I just think that it's... Um, it, it's I, I understand that that's kind of where we are in sports fandom, but I try to buck against it as much as I can because I think it's a pretty miserable existence if all you care about is winning the championship. I get that's the goal and all of that, but only one team gets to do that, and... There have been so many great moments, specifically in this town for teams, especially Pacers teams that didn't win titles. And so many figures that we celebrated that had no championships like Reggie Miller. And um, I, I just think that it, it's kind of unfair to throw everything else out because a championship didn't happen to occur. occur. You know, Rick Smith's shot against Orlando meant something. Uh, Reggie Miller umpteen times at Madison Square Garden meant something um the Pacers going toe to toe better than any team in the league really maybe say Boston in the playoffs in 12 and 13 and 14 to me that that meant something I I got something out of that watching that and I think fans should approach it kind of the same way or else my god you're just going to be miserable your whole life
2: (laughs) well yeah and I mean you're looking at that team in Indiana like how many of us, I mean, if we're really looking hard in the mirror, how many people really thought the Pacers were going to beat the Heat in, in 2012, 2013, or 2014? I mean, even though we had the number one seat, I mean, you saw how we got there. We stumbled our way against Atlanta, uh, you know, took care of Washington in six games, but that still didn't look promising. I mean, it was one of those things where it never felt like great. You were just happy to be there. W- with the Pacers in the 90s, I mean, Reggie was starting to come into his own against the Knicks. You know, the year they finally beat the Knicks, it's not for the conference finals. And then they get beat by the Magic in the in the Eastern Conference Finals in, in seven games. Then they play the Bulls in 98 and lose that one in seven. I mean, you're going up against Michael Jordan, the best player in the NBA. LeBron James, at one point, the best player in the NBA. So it's like these Pacers teams have been really successful. They just haven't, you know, acquainted to a championship. And I think... You know, you look back at all those runs and you're like, you know, it was fun to root for this team, you know, and then there's been teams that you've watched and even even though the the season wasn't super fun. Watching Lance Stevenson come back for those six games when the Pacers made that push to get the seventh seed and and play Toronto before Paul, I believe that was, no, maybe it wasn't, it was the year before that, but two years before Paul won it out. I mean, that team wasn't any good, but that that playoff run was fun when they took Toronto to seven. So I, I think it just really depends on what your expectations are. And if your expectations are realistic, then I think that you won't end up being disappointed as much as possible, because I really do believe that. If you look at these Pacers teams, they're always the underdog. I've never seen a Pacers team where I felt like, oh, yeah, they're the top dog in the league. They've I've never really seen that. And the only time possible that that could have happened was the brawl year. And, and that completely got torn to pieces as soon as Ron went in the stands and started punching fans. So uh, I don't know if you're with me or not, but I that's just kind of how I feel about the Pacers altogether. Yeah, and the
1: NBA has the least amount of parity of all the leagues. It's a dynasty league. It always has been. Uh, mm-hmm. Certainly in the last 40 years, it's been. L- like. Let's take Toronto off the table because Toronto hasn't had a chance really to follow up because I'm assuming this season is going to get canceled. If you go back from 1979 to now, uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, you've only had three one-off champs, and it was the, uh, the, the 83 Sixers, the 11 Mavs, mm-hmm. and LeBron – and the Cavs in 16, and really LeBron, you put an asterisk because I consider the titles, I don't consider them Heat and Cavs titles. I consider those, you know what I mean, like LeBron LeBron titles, right? So if you go back outside of that, you know, the Pistons won, what, four uh, or three, whatever they've won. Uh, The Lakers have won 110, I think is what they've won. Uh, Celtics have won a bunch in that time. Bulls won six. Rockets won two. Um, every single other team that has won during that time has ended up winning again at at some other point. So it's just really, really difficult to have the stars align and everything come together. I mean, I'm not trying to take anything away from Toronto, but think about how much good fortune was involved in them putting that title run together because you had a superstar just kind of wake up one day and decide, Hey, I don't want to do this anymore. With my current team, he sort of falls into your lap and then you have this amazing run built around kind of a veteran team where you've got these ridiculous game-winning shots to beat Philadelphia. Uh, the Warriors completely turned to ash in the NBA Finals from an injury standpoint. You know, you, you need a million things to happen. I, I think the 11 Mavs can say the same thing. Mm-hmm. You needed a million things to happen for those runs to, to actually take place. So to, to just kind of, you know, think, you know, brush off the Pacers or say this is a team that, oh, God, they stink every year and, and they're they're a failure organization and, and all of that, and which I'm, I'm not saying is the prevailing thought, but there are those people out there. I just think is really unfair for a team that year after year puts itself in the playoffs. And is it frustrating that they bump up against their glass ceiling? Yeah, sure. But the, the Pacers' existence, I'll, I'll take the Pacers' last 30 years over a lot of teams that are in their sort of situation, kind of middle market, not a great free agent destination, um, and and not playing with a lot of the advantages that you know Miami, New York, Chicago, L.A., some of these other teams um, are, are able to play with.
2: Okay, so hypothetically speaking now, let's say the Pacers did this, which they haven't really been in this position in a long time, but let's say they are – you know, given an opportunity to be a top five team in the NBA draft lottery, you know, do you think there's, you know, they they decided that they wanted to always compete for a playoff spot. And that was even during the, the tough years of Troy Murphy and Mike Dunleavy with Danny Granger. I mean, those awful teams that, were semi-fun to watch offensively but you just jim o'brien was not a coach that i could endorse personally but uh you know you look at those teams and they weren't good enough really to be competitive in the playoffs and they'd get the ninth seed or the eighth seed and always pick late in the lottery but a lot of fans say why don't the pacers ever try to get into a top five lottery where they tank for one season to go out there and get a difference maker so hypothetically speaking Would you want the Pacers to do that? Or do you think what they're doing now makes more sense as far as building a strong organization?
1: I'd always rather make the playoffs than not. But if you're asking me, you know, you mentioned those Granger, Dunleavy, Murphy teams. I remember one of those years with about a month left in the season, the Pacers were slotted to pick third or fourth. And they ran off like 10 wins in their last 12. I want to say that that was the, oh, they, they got to 36 wins. I remember that. I, I want to say that that was the oh eight oh nine season, but I might be wrong. Um, that, you, you know, winning 10 of your last 12 meaningless games and picking 13th, which I think ended up being the Hansborough pick, instead of picking third or fourth, you know, that really ends up stinging you. Mm-hmm. Um, Pretty good. Like, I, I would rather have that. I would rather be the four or the five seed than be picking third in the draft. And, and a lot of people will disagree. With that, but that's, that's just where I am. Like overall, I want to enjoy the season and I want to see playoff basketball and all of that. And, and most of the time, at least here recently, the Pacers have been able to do that. But, um, you know, my, my favorite fact, and I throw this statistic out all the time because not many people realize this. The last time the Pacers had a single digit draft selection, And this isn't just that they traded or whatever. This is the last time the Pacers had a single-digit draft selection that they owned, period, was 1989. That is by far the longest streak in the league. Uh, You have to go to to Tim Duncan to the Spurs in 97 as the next most recent single-digit draft selection for an NBA franchise. So it's just – it really is – it's truly – they picked 10th a couple of times. Obviously, Paul George was the 10th overall pick. But it's, it's truly incredible how not bad they've been for the last 30 years. Like, they've never truly been terrible. They've been not very good. They've been mediocre. But they've really never been awfully, horribly, you know, Isaiah Thomas with the Knicks level bad.
2: Yeah, and, I, and I'm looking here at the uh, NBA draft uh, history, and uh, I went to the 89 NBA draft. Do you know what pick they had? Do you know off the top of your head? <laughs>
1: Yeah, it, w- it was
2: George McLeod ninth, right? It was seventh actually.
1: Oh, seventh. Okay, yeah. Well, I knew it was single digit, but it, w- it was hey, George. You, McLeod, you got George right? McLeod. Okay, I, was, yeah.
2: I was impressed. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, could have had some Hardaway, Mookie Blaylock, you know. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't particularly a great draft.
1: In Sean Kemp if I, went if seventeen. I yeah, yeah.
2: Well, wow, that Sean ended up Kemp.
1: working
2: out. Yeah, I know. You talked about that lockout in the night in the '99 season, and all I ever think about is Fat Kemp, but. Uh, (laughs) just seeing him in that black Cavs jersey just looks so weird because I'm used to seeing him in that Sonics jersey you know what I mean it's just like the the lockout did a lot of bad things for him but um anyway so I I mean I think we kind of wrapped up this segment talking about you know the Pacers what the future could be like you know not playing this season uh bigger picture here but um I know you were kind of interested I guess I should say with the build your pacer squad list that I came out with. And honestly, like I I'm sitting here on my lunch break. I I'm bored to death, nothing to do. And I'm like, Oh, okay, let's do one of these build your pacer squad. I'm just going to make it up. And I honestly put like hardly any thought into it, to be honest with you. I was like, I just know the popular guys, I'll throw them on there and try to make it where it's evenly balanced and stuff like that. So first and foremost, you said it, I think you tweeted at me. You said this probably one of the best evenly balanced ones you've uh, seen in that area. And I was curious, did you build your Pacer squad with $15?
1: I did. I'm trying now to go through it and find it. Uh, Let me look. I I want to make sure that I've got it. Okay, this is where I said, yeah, this is where I said, really good list, Alex, but I don't know what. I'll look at it here. I know I had George Hill running the point. I think I went Hill, Sabonis, J O P G maybe.
2: Yeah, I can't remember what I put either. I'm gonna to try to find it while you're talking. Would but, that uh... work?
1: Let's see. J- J-O-P-G, So that's ten bucks. So bonus thirteen. Hill a dollar. Oh, and I went Boyan. Yeah. So that was my that was my five. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Okay. Which I like because I, I think you get some scoring pop there. Um, Hill is just kind of uh, I I thought you know. The worst thing for George Hill was being born in Indianapolis, really. Uh, I I think we would have remembered George Hill a lot differently and and getting traded for Kawhi Leonard. I think we would have remembered the George Hill tenure here a lot differently had had he not been traded for the draft rights to what ended up being Kawhi and had he not kind of faced the pressure of being a broad ripple kid, IUPUI and all of that, because I I always thought that George Hill – was just a, a rock-solid player who did everything that was asked of him, was maybe not great in any one area, but was good in virtually every area. And, you know, for, for a franchise that really hasn't had a lot of great point guards, you know, no offense to Mark Jackson, but, man, if you've been around for 40 years and Mark Jackson is your gold standard for point guards, then, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like, you know, Mark Jackson had a, had a good career and he hung around for a long time, but that's not exactly a guy that is... Um, you know, it was ever an elite level player or anything close to it? Um, I thought George Hill was was just really, really good, and um, and so I, I'll I'll swoop him up for a buck. And Boyan, just because he can fill it up, um, right? I, I'll take him. So so I've got the, a really cheap backcourt, and I'll worry about getting buckets with Jo and PG. And um, you know, I, I kind of debated should I go Dale Davis instead of Sabonis? Like, should I try to, you know maybe focus a little more defensively or, or focus a little more body wise, you know, physicality wise. But um, I just think Sabonis is uh, you know, he's, he's kind of starting to show you what he could be. And I, and I was one of those people that was not really a big um, you know, it, it kind of became a Sabonis or Turner thing. And, and I was pretty firmly Turner and I, and I felt like he had much more growth potential. And, you know, even though I, I remained a miles Turner defender, um i think officially sabonis has has replaced his growth potential with what he's been able to show so far and and he's kind of grown leaps and bounds whereas turner has
2: has you know here
1: and there improved but you know hasn't kind of rocketed up like sabonis has
2: yeah and it's funny because when sabonis first came here i honestly didn't think too much about it i was like oh he'll be a good backup center and then you you watch him play off the bench and He almost looked motivated by that trade from Oklahoma City, and he actually got put in a position where he could play his natural position as the center because playing power forward and trying to shoot threes, we've seen it here, it's not his game. And one thing we can say is Sabonis is a fantastic passer. That's my favorite aspect probably of his game altogether is just his basketball IQ. He's a good rebounder. He can score. You know, He's not a great shooter, but he's a capable shooter. Uh, Turner, I've been hard on I'm probably one of those guys that you're uh you've had to argue with as being down on <laughs> Turner. And uh it's it is what it is. I mean people know that listen to it and they get annoyed with me because I'm not an appreciator as much as I should be. But I backed off quite a bit. I just I, I've always said that I kind of got annoyed with his I'm gonna be the leader of this team when Paul George requested the trade, and then constantly I just feel like he's he's good but he doesn't make vast improvements like to me i feel like this might have been his best season as a pacer because he's taken a bit of a back seat and he doesn't have to be the focal point and it's not all about him and i think fitting in with sabonis and doing what he's asked to do and not trying to be the main focal point on offense to me personally i think has helped him overall as a player and i i think that he's shown a a lot of maturity in that he's been able to adjust to that role because going from a starter who was involved in every pick and roll action and pick and pop action to being a stretch four, I mean, that's, that's a big challenge and a big, you know, uh, it's a tall task to ask somebody. So that's kind of where I've stood on those two. But yeah, my, my guy, Kent Sterling, that I told you I do a podcast with on Monday, you guys are good friends. He was, he's very adamant that Goga Bataze is going to be an all-star in four years. <laughs> and, um he he believes that one of turner or sabonis is going to be traded and he's firm that it's going to be miles turner so uh i'll let you guys talk about that because i don't wanted to sit here and try to defend his take on that but i wanted to throw that two cents in there and anyway back to the build Your pacer squad this was a tough one for me too just so people know for five dollars it was reggie germain or pg for four dollars was oladipo rick smith's danny granger three dollars mark jackson sabonis Dell davis for two dollars, you got Chuck Person, Roy Hibbert, David West, and for one dollar, George Hill, Miles Turner, and Bojan. And the team I went with was George Hill, Reggie Miller, Chuck Person, Danny Granger, and Sabonis. So, what are your thoughts on that squad?
1: Yeah, rifleman. I liked people, including Chuck Person, because I think Chuck Person was a really solid player. And when you look back at that '86 draft. It was such a disaster, you know, obviously with the Len Bias tragedy, but so many of those guys ended up being bust either because they couldn't play or because of drugs or drinking or whatever else or injuries in Brad Darty's case that the Pacers could have done a lot worse than Chuck Person. Right. And he was also, of course, their, you know, their, their prominent player on their first playoff team, uh, at least in their NBA history. So I like that. And I went through your comments on that tweet. So I, I like that a lot of people included Person Um, Yeah, you know, Reggie, because of the heroics and all of that, like, you know, pound for pound, is is Reggie Miller as talented as a a basketball player as Paul George was? No. Uh, But Reggie had some things that a lot of fans here wanted Paul George to have, that I think he kind of showed last season in Oklahoma City, but rarely showed here uh, with his ability in, in late game situations and all of that. And of course, there's you know, the the fact that Reggie's a beloved figure where Paul George will never be remembered that way here. Right. I chose J.O. because I think really, um, if you take into account that six-season stretch or so from about 2002 to 2007, it's about as good of a stretch as any pacer has ever had, um, NBA or ABA-wise, really. I mean, he was he finished third in the MVP voting one of those years. Um, he was a, a a prominent and a a really, really good player. Um, now he wasn't the, uh, the toughest guy. I remember him, uh, really taking it easy when it came to injuries and look, you know, to each their own. But I, I remember anytime there was any sort of a a flare up of anything at all, Jo was going to sit, he just wasn't going to play. And, and that's fine. Um, but that caused a lot of frustration, I think, at times. Um, and while he said all the right things, of course, the, you know, the brawl season ended up happening in 04, 05, and that group was never able to really show what they can do outside of that first year in, in, in 04 when they had the best record in the East. Um, but I included him because I, I just think – I, I kind of looked at it really from a talent standpoint, and then I tried to look at how the, the pieces all fit together. And I felt very strongly – that the most talented front court was was George Sabonis and and Jo, and then I could go ahead and and go kind of bargain shopping with my backcourt with Hill and Boyan, knowing that I didn't need much from those two, considering what what I can bring up front with those three. Actually, funny story, real quick. Mm-hmm. I actually told this on another podcast, but my um, I did a couple of internships in college, but my uh, first internship in Indianapolis was as a senior at IU. I worked for Kevin Lee, NBC Sports, and and he does a lot of IndyCar stuff. But at the time, he was the sports director at WIBC, which was 1070 before 1070 in its current incarnation existed. And my job was to drive up from Bloomington and get audio in the Pacers locker room for Kevin's postgame show. So my. my first job or my first team that I covered, kind of, I was an intern, but still I was there for all the Thursday, Friday and Saturday night games. Was the O four O five Pacers, which was quite the baptism into covering sports because you talk about a, a crazy season to be around a single team. You know, the first week of November, it's Steven Jackson and test and Jo and all these guys that I'm talking to in the locker room. By December, I'm standing and waiting for Eddie Gill's post game comments. You know what I mean, <laughs> Jonathan Jonathan Bender. You know, people like that. you're just like, you know, normally you would you you probably wouldn't care what Freddie Jones had to say, but you're there because they've got nobody left. And, um, and that, I feel like Indiana sports is full of what ifs. And, and that really is one of the biggest, what ifs, what if that might haven't happened? You know, uh, that, that 05 Spurs team wasn't particularly, even though of course it's the middle of the dynasty and it's Duncan and Ginobili and Parker, that wasn't particularly some unstoppable force sort of a team it just felt like that Pacers squad could have really pushed for a title and all the stars were aligned for that to happen. And then of course, you know, very early in the season that it never really got off the
2: ground. Well, that makes me ask, that makes me want to ask you then, what do you think is the greatest Pacers team of all time then? 98. Yeah. That's kind of what, that's what I think too.
1: I think that that is pretty universally considered the best Pacers team. Um, you had really a, a great mix of guys at their peak, like Reggie, and then just a, a, a really terrific mix of veterans. You know, Chris Mullen, people forget how solid he was on some of those teams. Um, Smiths was also at kind of the, the, the peak of his prime. Um, that was just a really, really good squad that unfortunately – you know, happened during the last year of the dynasty bulls and, and Jordan's fifth and final MVP. And really the last season that Michael Jordan was Michael Jordan and they they were right there. I mean, they led that game late and, uh, and, you know, people know how that ended up uh, going, but I, I put the Oh four Oh five team right up there with the rest. Um, you know, I, I don't even know who the second-best team really would be. I think you can make an argument that the 0 team could have been the second-best, but it's tough because we're only really going off a month of data because, you know, that happened. The brawl happened in late November, and it nuked everything. Um, the 99 lockout team I thought that they came back with because Jalen Rose started getting cooking I thought was a really good team. Um, you, you know, 94-95, those teams, I, I think you just kind of felt sort of happy to be there. Um, the 0-4 team w- was a solid squad, but I, I, I don't think it was quite to the level of those other teams that we mentioned. And ditto for the 14 team. You know, the 14 and O four 4 teams, I think, were kind of this, around the same to me. Both of them ended up being the number one seed in the East. Uh, J.O. had that amazing season. Um, but I, I don't quite stack them up pound for pound. I, I think, really, the three teams that are in the argument to me are 98-99, and, and 05 as, as in their NBA history as the best Pacers teams. And I, you know, gun to my head, I'd probably rank them 98, 05, 99, one, two, three.
2: Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So I, uh, I created a Pacers, uh, bracket. I don't know if you saw this or not kind of, uh, floating around Twitter or not, but I did a, uh, a top 32 Pacers teams, which was really incredibly hard to find 32 good Pacers teams. So there's about 25, but the, uh, the last ones, the last seven, were quite difficult to come up with because some of them didn't even have winning records. But uh, the one seeds that I gave out, I gave out the 97-98 as the number one seed overall. Another number one seed I gave the 0 3 4 team because they won 61 games. They were 61-21. Yeah, it's
1: still a record, yeah.
2: Right. Uh, I gave the 99-2000 NBA Finals team one because they made it the furthest. And then the other one I gave, a, I gave the 2013-2014 Indiana Pacers the – the last you know year with Paul and Roy and all those guys together before Paul broke his leg the one seed so it was kind of interesting to see how it all played out uh mostly went chalk but there was an upset which I thought was funny was the 2012-2013 team dominated the 2003-2004 Pacers teams in uh in our voting committee that we had I had like Chris Thinari, Mark Monteith, uh, really? Tony, huh. Tony East, uh, yeah. Kent Sterling, Jeremiah. On, and it was 7-1. to one. I mean, that's what was crazy about wow. it, voting-wise. And they actually, it came down, it was a 5-3 to three vote, but they ended up picking uh, the NBA Finals team as the best Pacers team of all time, beating the 98 team, which caught me by surprise. And I told Kent that. Uh, and Kent was not happy.
1: <laughs> so I guess it's not universal. Yeah, no, that surprised me because I I thought everybody was on the same page that '98 was better. Uh, by the way, I, I said um, not '99, 2000. Sorry, I was using the the end years and then I didn't for the '99 team. Um, 98, 5 2000 is exactly. how I would rank them one, two, three. So you, you know, the '99 team was good too. That that was, but that was the lockout year and that was weird. But um, I thought that 99 team had a chance to, at the very least, get to the NBA Finals. But, of course, LJ's four-point play. and We're not going to get into that. Um, it was yeah, good that, for you. that, does, that, that <laughs> surprised me. It also surprised me about the 13 team over the 0 3 Um team. Y- y- yeah, I guess so. Um, the, the, the 13 team really kind of came on late. And, um, I, you know, that, that series where they beat the Knicks was amazing. Um, I, I just think that uh, – there was there was some flukiness that went into that because, as we came to see, and I really felt like at the time it was that way too, um, Roy Hibbert just played – Roy Hibbert played two or three weeks of basketball where he was just on another planet. Um, he was never that player before, and he was never that player again. Um, and <laughs> and it was great. Yeah, it was great, and, and everybody enjoyed it. I actually kind of felt bad for Roy because I think – overnight people started to expect him to be a 20 and 10 guy and Roy Hibbert was never going to be a 20 and 10 guy. You know, Roy Hibbert was like a 12 and 8 guy if that. And you know, especially on the 8 end because rebounding was always kind of an issue for him. Um <laughs> but that that does I, I love that 2012-13 team. That was one I of the too. most fun fun seasons that I ever was around any team. Colts, Pacers, IU, Purdue, anything. Um, and I love that run. Uh, that, that was really a, a lot of fun. Um, I remember Vogel taking his daughters to the podium when they beat the Knicks in six and, and what were going to the Eastern Conference finals. And it, it was a really, really fun group and, and an easy group to root for. And, and all, everybody was on the same page, unlike the 14 team. But that does surprise me because I, I think the 03-04 team, um, while I don't think they were the best team in Pacers history or anything like that, I mean, 61 wins, That that team was really really really
2: good yeah I, I think that a lot of people just kind of forget about that team because you know they ended up losing was it at the Eastern I don't even know if they lost in the Eastern Conference Finals they might have lost in the semifinals to the Detroit Pistons but the Pistons were always in their way I mean it always felt like there was just one team that just had a little bit more than them uh, as far as you know getting over the hump and you know we talked about it when we kind of broke down this bracket on our podcast and other areas you know we talked about The acquiring of Rasheed Wallace for Detroit put them over the hump, you know, and the Pacers, you know, they had we've heard Reggie talk about it because he says Ron thought it was his team and Jermaine thought it was his team and they couldn't realize that it was both their teams. You know, it didn't have to be one person's team or the other, but, you know, there was there was too much going on there and it it kind of came all together because I think that happens a lot in sports. We uh, we had Thaddeus Young on last week. And we were talking to him about what was the biggest difference between that Pacers team with Paul George going into the Oladipo year because he was there for that transition. And, And he basically just said, when you have guys like Monte, Jeff Teague, and Paul George, there was too many alpha males in the locker room. And nobody could figure out who the voice was that they were supposed to all listen to. Everybody thought they had to have their voice in the locker room. He said, when Vic came in, the whole entire culture changed and we knew who our alpha male was. And we knew who our voice was in that locker room, so it was it was kind of cool to see him talk about that. But as you know, looking back, you can kind of see where that happens a lot with teams that you want to see succeed, but they don't. And I can see where that twenty thirteen twenty fourteen team Pacers started Pacers team started to fall off. I mean, we know about the rumors in the locker room. Uh, Roy Hibbert, like you said, expectations were too high for him, and people thought he was supposed to be somebody he wasn't. Lance was, you know, trying to make a case for being an all star leads the league in triple doubles you got David West who just wants to win Paul's starting to feel himself a little bit coming into his own as the guy of the team and then of course there's no Danny Granger I think losing a guy like Granger losing that guy that was you know just the glue in the locker room really kind of turned things around for that team and that kind of the end of that dynasty there so you know while it was fun while, while it lasted I think people will always think of that team as well as another disappointment just because you know the the they thought that they were going to be better than what they were, and they didn't live up to the expectations in the playoffs.
1: Yeah, in late January they went on a Western trip and just kind of ran roughshod over everybody. I, I remember they they won a game handily in L.A. and and I think PG did Kimmel that night, and that ended up being really kind of the pinnacle of the season, right. where you thought to yourself, oh my god, this is real. Like they're they're really. I, I don't even remember. I'm trying to remember what their record was. It was something just stupid. It was like they were I think they were like thirty one and nine or something maybe at that point. Mm-hmm. They were really cruising and then it was just like little chips along the way and um and the Granger for Evan Turner trade ended up being a disaster that remember that Andrew bynum thing uh, <laughs> oh, you we know, for two games or whatever <laughs> it was yeah you know there were there were a lot of i I think if you gave Larry Birch some true serum um While the Evan Turner trade may have made sense on paper, uh, it it clearly, I I think especially, if if I'm not mistaken, created a a mental problem for Paul George because I think he's spoken about that. The fact that the Granger trade, um, it kind of changed his whole outlook on the organization because he felt like if they're going to do Danny Granger like that, then... How are they going to feel about me? And, and it never, he never really forgave them for that. So, look, you know, Paul George had his own problems. But I, I, I kind him. of I, I kind of see where he's coming from with, with something like that. So, yeah, you know, th- that team just completely ran out of gas. I, I think Roy was um, – I, I just don't think that, that Roy was mentally tough enough to handle the criticism and everything that was coming his way. I, I, again, like I said, I, I'm sympathetic to his cause. I felt bad for him. Because um, I think those, the, that flukish run in 13 set unrealistic expectations for him. Um, but at the same time, he just completely, I think, mentally fell apart. Uh, I don't think it had anything to do with somebody sleeping with somebody. You know, I, I remember all those rumors that came. I, I, and I talked to people that would know. And, you know, I, they, I'm not saying that they told me everything because I don't know. You know, people keep some things themselves. I, I've never felt like there was anything in there that suggested there was any sort of like uh, a personal life issue there with Roy. I think it was just one of those things where everybody was dogging on him. And, and I remember uh, yeah, I remember that Washington series, uh, the Atlanta series before it, especially, but then even into the Washington series where you were like, I don't even know if this guy should be on the floor right now. Uh, that's how much he was really kind of struggling with it.
2: No, and that's the thing. I mean, you had Perro Antich out there for the Hawks just killing him, uh, a guy that nobody's yeah. even heard of after the, that, that season. Chris Copeland was the guy they brought in off the bench to try to help play a little bit of stretch five. And I mean, I guess at this point you're starting to see a little bit of a change in the way basketball is being played because, you know, Budenholzer's trying to pull Hibbert off the court, and we saw when when Vogel took out Hibbert the previous year, it, it cost the Pacers with LeBron getting a wide-open layup and you know, I still don't know how much of a factor that plays into it if Hipper fouls him, whatever. I mean, who knows what could have happened, but uh Paul overplayed that inbounds play and that wasn't the only time he's ever overplayed it. He had overplayed it in the regular season a couple times too. So it's it's one of those things where yeah, I I love to look back and one of the things that I've always said about Larry Bird with those moves is he was all in that year and Evan Turner was playing probably his best basketball of his career. Granted, it was on the worst team in the NBA, but, you know, if you're trying to make improvements, Danny wasn't going to be able to play. So he was trying to get a guy that could help them off the bench. He thought Andrew Bynum, if healthy, and when he was healthy, we saw how dominant he was in those two games that he played, he could have helped them. So I don't fault Larry as much as people do for that season and bringing in those guys. And I'm alone on this island more than likely because everybody hates Evan Turner for some reason. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm honestly like – I really felt like he tried to make that team as competitive as he could it, without really changing too much of the nucleus up. And y- you hate to see him trade a guy like Granger because of what he meant to the team, but it was a big contract and a guy was injured. And we saw after he was traded, he was never the same again. So
1: He, did, he didn't do anything. Yeah, I yeah. mean, after, after Granger was gone, I mean, you know, he, nothing, nothing happened for him. He was pretty soon out of the league, so – um, yeah, you know, I, I, I feel for Larry a little bit because on paper, it was, I, I remember we were on the air when that trade broke and it felt like a slam dunk because you felt like Turner was going to be a far more useful player and, and maybe you could even re-sign him at some point than, than what Granger would be at that point. But you, you kind of mentioned it, Alex. You, you can't, you know, I could look up somebody's basketball reference page, um, but you can't find on there what they mean to a locker room and clearly Granger met a lot more to that locker room right. than what he meant on a stat sheet. And, um, you know, bird, bird did far more than good, uh, good, good than bad, in my opinion, but we tend to remember people on how they exited. And it was a really bad exit for bird. Um, and there were a couple of, you know, those teams, those teams after that West Hibbert, George Hill, Lance group um they they just were not only were they not good they just the roster construction was just really poor and I I think you got to hang that on Larry and it's actually amazing that Kevin Pritchard was able to make chicken salad out of chicken bleep with basically what he was handed when he took over that job, because you, I, I can't envision a, a worse scenario for a GM to walk into than, than what Pritchard ended up walking into when Bird decided to move on. But I think overall his tenure was successful, um, and I think building the core of those 12, 13, and 14 teams, he should be commended for that. But unfortunately, you know, we're, we're just it, – it's a recency bias, and um, 15 – 15 and 16, the, the 14, 15, 15, 16, 16, 17 seasons. I'll give him a break for Paul George breaking his leg, but you know, Monte Ellis and, and CJ and, and some of these other, you know, yeah, <laughs> just out, throwing, right? <laughs> yeah, throwing guys in there to see kind of what fit. It, it's actually amazing that that, that 16 team made the playoffs and, and pushed Toronto. That was really a series. They should have won. Uh, they led, they blew a big lead in game six in Toronto late. And, and that really was a, um or game five sorry
2: yeah five
1: and they should have been they should have been coming back home to indy to close it out in six and they ended up losing in seven um it's really amazing looking back on paper on that team that they, they really had a chance to win a playoff series because I, I just got that, that team stunk
2: yeah i mean you had young miles starting up there with mahimi uh it was uh it was interesting uh solomon hill probably played the best basketball of his career yeah got him a huge contract in, in that process too That was one of my most favorite uh, series to watch because even though the Pacers were the seventh seed, you felt like they could actually beat Toronto because I just never bought into DeMar DeRozan and the Raptors as a serious playoff threat. And, you know, they go out there and if if you look back at that last play, the last possession the Pacers had on offense where Paul George drives the baseline, and he tries to throw an oop past to Mahimi, and Mahimi just gets shoved in the back. And the rest don't call anything, and the Pacers end up, you know, having a foul, and then the game's over, essentially. You know, you just think maybe if they call that foul, the game has changed, and it's a different scenario. But if you go back and watch those last few minutes, I mean, it was a lot of Monte Ellis taking a lot of bad shots. And uh, it I don't know. i just There's something about Monte that was just so awful and um, I was I, I was never like super excited for him to come here. It was kind of one of those things like, okay, we're getting a guy that's going to play faster, but he definitely had to have the ball in his hand, and it, it was not to me a good fit with him and uh, George Hill and uh, Paul George.
1: No, Monte, and I'll steal a term from my former uh, on-air partner, Jay Query, which I always thought was a great term, and I really think that there should be a term everywhere. Monte was a, uh, a 20 and 25 guy. And what that means is scores 20 points a game for a team that wins 25 games. You know, uh, there, there are just those certain guys that really can, can fill it up and they get numbers because somebody has to get numbers. And I think Ellis was one of those guys, you know, obviously he was a gifted scorer, but he was completely a one trick pony. And when that one trick wasn't cooking, then he was just useless. And, um, yeah, you know, that, that window there, I think, really is, you know, maybe Paul George leaves no matter what. Maybe he always goes to L.A., because certainly that that's, was the thought here in Indianapolis, that, that Paul George never fully embraced Indiana and, and was always going to go somewhere else. But I think what really solidified it for him were, were those teams, after that core went away, you know, kind of looking around and being like, dude, seriously, I got to play with this. And and I think Ellis is obviously the, I think the face of those, um, you know, not, not terrible. They weren't the dummy, e. V Murphy teams, but they, they certainly weren't any good.
2: Yeah. And I also, I, I really believe this is the, the icing on the cake. I think everything was kind of building up to it, but when they traded George Hill for Jeff Teague, I think that's kind of when it was all done for him. Him and George were incredibly close and they're still yeah. close. And if you look at the, team that he played with before like they basically had revamped the entire roster he had nobody on his team from when he first got there uh you know george was acquired the year after he got there but still i mean he had been there for so long i think paul just kind of felt like man all these new guys here this doesn't feel like the organization i was you know looking forward to playing with for a while and maybe like you said maybe he doesn't stay there long term because in his mind he always had the clippers or the lakers on his heart Uh, being in NLA and that kind of thing where you know he uh, he even mentioned to his agent that he wanted to be traded to the Lakers if at all possible when the Pacers decided to move on from him uh, after he said he didn't want to come back the next season so yeah it's uh it's one of those bittersweet things but you know we've had fun kind of reminiscing I don't even know what to title this podcast because we've just kind of been all over the place talking about different things involving the Pacers and mostly reminiscing about great teams but uh, you know, it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun, Derek, and I hope, hopefully we can watch basketball and talk some, some Pacers basketball in the future, whether it's next season or whether it's, you know, the playoffs do pick up, uh, at the, uh, at the middle of July or August, whoever, who knows what's going to happen. But whenever there is Pacers basketball, it'd be great to have you back on and, and talk about what's actually going on on the court.
1: Yeah, I appreciate the invite. Thanks for thinking of me. And I uh, would love to do it again sometime. And you're right, man. Hopefully, you know, obviously like we said earlier in our conversation, they're they're bigger fish to fry right now, but um I'm like you, I'm like everybody else listening to this, so, you know. I I I want sports back in my life, so hopefully that's sooner rather than later.
2: Yeah, and I one thing I totally didn't even think about when we were talking is how they would approach the off season. You know, how, how would the Pacers approach this offseason if there is no playoffs where they can see if this big man unit can work? Obviously, they don't have a draft pick. it's It belongs to the Bucks right now. So if the NBA draft did happen, they wouldn't be a part of that unless they made a trade. And then free agency, how would that work and how would the contracts work right now with players? So uh, that's a totally different conversation for another day because we were an hour into this and don't think <laughs> you know it's uh, appropriate to bring it up now but those are all important questions that we will have to ask if that is the case with the mba season coming to an abrupt halt like it did but anyway Derek, thanks again so much for coming on and where can people find you at on twitter if they aren't already doing that
1: at schultz 975 which uh was my former frequency was Fox Sports nine seventy five, and if you change your handle, they take that elusive blue check mark away. And I just, I do not want to give up my blue check mark, so I'm keeping it at Schultz nine seventy five for <laughs> right, uh, until they open up the verification process on Twitter again.
2: Yeah, that, that is exactly what I would do. Being verified is. Uh, yeah is huge and it gives you so much more credibility. But anyway, Derek, once again, thanks so much. I hope you get some rest and uh, enjoy the rest of your night. Thanks so much, Alex. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history.